Because that, that is the other tricky thing, especially, you know, when you're living with someone, when you're married to them, you own a house together. Like, it's, it's hard to detach without the consequences also falling on yourself. Welcome to episode 70 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Laura and Becky. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Laura and Becky, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Do you wonder how you're going to make it through another day with the drinking and the chaos? Have you had thoughts of leaving or worse? Today we have four stories of living with active alcoholism or addiction. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of living with active alcoholism or addiction. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me is co-host Maria. How are you doing today, Maria? I'm doing all right, thanks. How are you doing, Spencer? I am... I'm good today, and I think it has a lot to do with the warm, sunny weather. But (laughs) our our minister started out the service today with uh, uh, a quote from one of our hymns that said, Winter has been with us long. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We all agreed that that had been true and that we were pretty happy. Uh, There was general laughter, which is good to have. And joining us uh, virtually today are Jen and Julie, and I'm immensely grateful to them for sharing their stories with us and with you. So the first part of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be the sharing of individual stories of living with active alcoholism or addiction. We'll follow that with your email or voice contributions and some brief news about the podcast before closing. We'll have some musical breaks in the middle. The reading today is... uh, um, a little off of the, the usual uh, line of readings that, that I pick. Um, this is from uh, a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, from a book called Life Together, and it's about listening. This is the first service that one owes others in the fellowship consists of listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they're in the company of others, that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. He who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. I heard this reading on the podcast on being, and I chose it because it speaks to the importance of listening to our fellows. Because, you know, what we're going to be doing today is listening to the stories of several of our fellow members uh, to hear their experience, strength, and hope. And, um, you know, I've just been thinking recently a lot about the the power of listening and and how that works in our program, um, that we find, you know, validation um, and, and I think we also find, many of us find an ability to really trust for the first time, um, that, uh, what we say will be heard 
and will be accepted and not not judged, not rejected, not belittled. Um, and uh, and so with that uh, sort of spirit, uh, let's move on into um, our topic today. So um, as I said, the show today is a little different from the usual. We're going to hear four stories of living with active alcoholism. And we're going to start with Julie's story. Julie found Alanon only recently, and I've asked Maria to read Julie's story. Okay, so Julie writes, I have known my qualifier for almost three years. It wasn't until we were nine months into our friendship and she was living with my family at the time did I discover her addiction. Once everything was now out on the table, I finally had answers to why things in our friendship and her behavior were so unpredictable and confusing. Little did I know that this was just going to be the beginning of my madness. Fast forward two years, and she has cycled through four jobs and is currently, by the grace of God and a very committed boss, still in her fifth job as of this writing. But even now, she is looking elsewhere to relocate. During the past two years of riding her roller coaster of addiction, I slowly began to lose me. Although I had a fantastic husband and three amazing school-aged kids going and blowing all the time with sports and other activities, and an extended family in town that got together often, as well as incredible friend and church support base, I was slipping away into codependency and never even knew it. I mean, I knew I was different, that I had lost my joy, that things I used to love to do held no meaning anymore, that I had no interest in cooking for my family or keeping house. The thought of going to the grocery store was enough to send me over the edge. I can relate to that. (laughs) Sorry, that's that's just me, uh, Maria, uh, interjecting myself into the story. But anyway, back to to her story. Um, My every hour had worry slash concern slash wonderings of her in it because of the chaos she was continuing to bring into my world late at night when my family was asleep. But about two weeks into her residential treatment, did I begin to see glimpses of the old me again. But as the day approached for me to retrieve her at the completion of her time away, I was beginning to be filled with dread. While at family weekend, yes, I was the quote family that went as her own family are all alcoholics, I was introduced to Al-Anon. I was like a sponge. Bells were going off in my head. I knew I needed this. So during the first week she was home from treatment and now living 45 minutes away, I started hunting for meetings in my area. After two weeks of actively trying and finding non-existent meetings, I finally had some AAs at a meeting that I ended up staying for tell me where to find what I was looking for. And finally, I had found my group. I began attending my Thursday home group mid-January of this year. Although nervous upon my first arrival, I was overwhelmed with how warm and welcoming everyone was at both the start and end of the meeting. I was already so endeared to them that I couldn't wait to go back the next week and I felt the same from them. I was struck by the laughter and how they had come to live with the act of alcoholism but didn't let it define them. I loved hearing them share how they cope and what slogans they use at different times. And I loved their transparency in sharing areas where they are struggling as well as where they are trying to trust their higher power and the process and let go. Although I wanted a sponsor, I felt like listening to the podcasts, speaker talks on YouTube, going to meetings, and reading the literature was probably enough. And honestly, I struggled with the fact that it would be just another thing that was going to take me away from my role and duties at home that I was desperately trying to get back on top of. But when my sweet friend relapsed after 114 days sober, I knew I was in trouble. My sober AA friend whose sponsor told me to get my own Al-Anon sponsor ASAP. And even though my new and full of laughter sponsor and I have only met for the first time last week, 
I feel as though I have another safety net underneath me. She assigned me to start working in the fourth step workbook, and it has been eye-opening. I'm so grateful. The one slogan that I seem to go back to time and time again is trust the process. At a recent meeting, the topic was acceptance. Talk about a moment of clarity. There were those bells going off again. In the three A's of awareness, acceptance, and action, the leader that night talked about how we often leave out acceptance and go straight to action. From awareness to action, believing that I must solve this, and now I was humbled as I listened to the ones who have been practicing the program longer talk about how staying in acceptance was so key to helping them know what the wisest course of action, if any, needed to be. It dawned on me that when I quickly go from awareness to action, I end up trying to control things I have no control over, causing more problems. But when I sit in acceptance and work the steps, then my actions are focused on myself and only what I have control over, which is me. This morning, I read Encouraged to Change for April 15th, the quote that says, When I concentrate on my personal progress, the difficulties over which I have no control will iron themselves out. I wrote next to it the word, really? Question mark. LOL. It sounds so counterintuitive, but in my heart of hearts, it must be true. I have done everything imaginable to heal and change her. Nothing. Going to rehab was her doing, but her relapse was hers as well. And in a strange way, her relapse was probably the best thing for me as it fully woke me from my denial that all was well. And it forced me to take a good, long, hard look at where I may need to set some boundaries, as there never were any, as well as remembering that I have a family that needs me first after I take care of myself. Of course, the three C's slogan is such a good reminder. I also, especially now, love the phrase, I don't create a crisis and I don't prevent a crisis if it is the natural course of events, from page 313. 373 of how Elanon works. I know that God uses all things, that he is sovereign, and that there is no nowhere we can run to that he is not there, that he is trustworthy and writing an amazing story with her life, that his office is found at the end of our rope, that I do not need to fear what might happen, that he's got this. But then there are those days that recognizing my powerlessness is overwhelmingly easy, if I am frantic, insecure, neurotic, or emotionally unstable, I am not fine. That's that's the abbreviation, F-I-N-E. Um, if I'm constantly checking my phone, I'm not fine. If I'm not getting basic chores done around the house, I know my mind is elsewhere trying to control a situation in my mind that I have absolutely no control over. I have finally learned that these feelings are telling me to stop and read my Al-Anon stuff or listen to podcasts. I will even, at times, have to reread about detachment as I seem to forget so easily. I was also reminded on a recent talk that if I'm always living in and looking at the problem, then I am not looking at the answer. Boom. Right now, my latest struggles are how and when to engage and spend t time with her. Because she lives 45 minutes away, and because she does not want to take me away from my family, our times together are late at night. And because she struggles with bipolar, when she is in her manic stage, she needs little sleep and can stay up all hours. It is hard for me to tell her no because I have been met with resistance and dis disappointment before, and I didn't like how that felt. Basically, it was a shaming because in her eyes I had rejected her when really I just needed my sleep. It had nothing to do with her. But although I love her and love spending time with her, I also feel obligated to be with her to keep her from driving drunk now that she has relapsed or doing anything else that would be dangerous to herself or to someone else. Since she is not living with us, I am now no longer on the front lines, but I can pretty much guarantee that once a week she will come for a visit, 
and now that she has relapsed, old ways of doing things are what I may be facing. This is where my sponsor will come in handy. Boundaries. I will end with the fact that last night she sent me a pic of a 24-hour chip. She went to a meeting. She's starting over. But even with that, I know now that I cannot put my hope in her but in my higher power that holds all things. Only he has the power to change her, and only he has the power to fill me with serenity as I hand her and everything that goes with her over to him. Thank you again, Julie, for sharing your story. And, uh, you know, actually, I, I had read this before, but reading it again I mean, it kind of brought me back to some of the, the early times in in my recovery or before my recovery, um, identifying with, with a lot of the feelings that she was having. Um, you have any reflections on, uh, on Julie's share? Um, yeah, there's a lot of good, good stuff in there. I, I love this thing about, um, if I'm always looking, looking at the problem, I'm not looking at the answer. Like, wow, yeah. that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was also kind of struck by, she said something about, um, you know, I know that when I'm not getting basic things done around the house that I've kind of lost my serenity. Like, <laughs> I feel like I could use that frequently as a check-in <laughs> point for myself. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I can get carried away with, like, a million other things, and then basic stuff goes out the window. So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember F-I-N-E. Yeah. I was just trying to think of what exactly that stood for, and so I'm glad that's, a, that's in here. Yeah, I think I've heard slightly different variants on it, but mm. frantic, insecure, neurotic, and emotionally unstable uh, works works pretty well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm fine. I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Exactly. <laughs> that, 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 that was where I was when I came to the program. I'm uh -huh. just fine. I'm holding on. I have claw marks, you know, <laughs> right. uh, where I'm holding on. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So thanks, Julie. And, you know, one of the, one of the uh, things that I hear in here and that, um, I am somewhat envious of Julie is that, um, it looks like she, it sounds like she came to the program already having a loving God and, and so that, um, you know, steps two and three maybe were a little easier. Mm -hmm. than they were for me, certainly, mm -hmm. um, where I had to figure out this whole God thing before I could even think about doing steps two and three. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, uh, second, our second story here is, um, from Jen and, uh, Jen, uh, sent a short, uh, voice contribution and then, um, I'll be reading, uh, the rest of her contribution. So here's her voice. Hi, this is Jen, and I have shared with Spencer by email some of my experience living with active alcoholism. Unfortunately, Spencer and I were not able to connect for voice conversation, uh, but I did want to say hello to the listeners and kind of give a little bit of my story. So I first came to Al-Anon in July of 2012 because I was becoming a crazy, crazy, crazy person as a result of living with active alcoholism. Um, my situation is that my spouse is the alcoholic, um, and we have, at the time, our kids were two and three. They are now four and five, um, so small children in the home, and very, very, very few people are aware of the problem. Um, so, uh, he, the first, uh, eight years or so that I knew him never had a, a single drink. And then, um, 
by the third year of our marriage, uh, definitely had an alcohol addiction problem. And um, I had known him for so long without ever seeing this aspect of um, his personality, I guess, or th this was all completely new to me. I felt like I was dealing with a stranger um, and like this was not the person that I knew. And um, I had a really hard time dealing with that and tried a lot of crazy, crazy attempts at controlling the situation or forcing outcomes and, and all those other fun things that we do before we're in the program. Um, but my life was completely um, unmanageable. I could not function like a normal person. So I came to Al-Anon not looking for a way to to cure the addiction problem or a way to fix him, but I came because I knew that I could not deal with day-to-day -day life under the current circumstances as they were at the time. So, um, having small kids made attending evening meetings virtually impossible, but I did find a lunchtime meeting uh, once a week that I was able to attend. And then, unfortunately, the same week that I got my one-year chip, I lost that particular job that allowed me to do that. And uh, for the last nine months, I have not been attending face-to-face -face meetings at all. Uh, the recovery show has been basically my only connection to the Al-Anon world. Um, during the time that I was attending meetings, um, that group, which is a very small group, um, the largest meeting I ever saw was about 15 or 16 people. Um, so that group never yielded a sponsor for me. Um, so I have never formally worked the steps. I have never had that sponsor relationship, at least not yet. Um, but my time spent in that, that one room that I did manage to get to for that year, um, completely changed the way that I approach my alcoholic, the way that I um, approach people in general, uh, whether they have addiction issues or not, and um, change the way I deal with myself, my own thoughts, uh, dramatically. So, although I don't feel like I work a particularly strong program at the moment, um, Al-Anon has still been life-changing, and I do have uh, five years now of experience living with active alcoholism, and I hope that something in my experience speaks to someone else. So thanks. And, and thank you, Jen. So I sent her um, a list of questions, and she elected to uh, sort of provide uh, uh, a share on, on, on each of the questions, and several of them were addressed in in her uh, opening uh, voicemail there. So I'm going to continue. Um, I asked, how are you using the tools of the Al-Anon program in your situation? She says, tug of war. Well, we love that tug of war, don't mm -hmm. we? She says, I don't have to pick up the rope. I don't recall ever hearing this in my face-to-face -face meetings. I think the recovery show gets all the credit for this one. I will say it, it actually, it's in the book, How Al-Anon Works in my copy. It's on page 30. Uh, apparently different copies have slightly different pagination. I hmm. think the paperback is slightly different from the hardback. Or maybe there's a new edition. But anyway, okay, enough interjection, sorry. Uh, 
When he's intoxicated, he has mostly learned to leave me alone because I know I don't want to deal with him. If he is interacting, his M.O. is to be depressed and pretty low-key. He's not generally a fighter, he's not aggressive, he's not mean, except when he's in that sort of three to five drink range where he hasn't yet achieved being full-on drunk. Then he can be quite hurtful with accusations or comments. Before learning about the rope, I would argue and try to defend myself if I felt I was being attacked by something he said. Now that I've recognized the pattern, I generally don't respond at all in those situations, or I just say something appeasing and don't internalize whatever hurtful thing has been said. On increasingly rare occasions, I do jump into that defense mode and start arguing, but then I remember I can drop the rope. Wow. I don't have to see the argument through to its inevitably useless end. Amazing. (laughs) I can so identify. Choices. It's been super instrumental for me to realize that I can make the decision to stay in this situation or not on a daily basis. Every day, I can assess the situation anew and see how I feel. So far, my assessment has always led to the conclusion that I can endure for now. But knowing that I can review that conclusion at any time helps keep me from feeling trapped in a situation I don't want to be in. It also reminds me that I am where I am because I've chosen to be. That puts some of the responsibility on me. If I'm miserable, I can't blame my misery solely on the alcoholic because I've made the choice to keep them in my life, and that makes me responsible too. Which slogans do you find helpful? The serenity prayer was the first tool I picked up, and repeating it like a mantra was very helpful in the beginning. I would also repeat the three C's as a mantra, and just as a reminder, the three C's are, I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. Sometimes they're in a different order, but those are the three C's. When I want to pick a fight, how important is it, is one that I try to use to stop myself, and that can be really helpful. Question, are you keeping the focus on yourself first? She says, ha 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 ha. I have a four-year-old and a five-year-old. Of course there's no focus on me. <laughs> Kidding. My behavior has changed to, to, with respect to where my focus is. I used to lose a lot of sleep, either keeping my loved one company while he was depressively drinking or waiting up for him if he was not home and I suspect that he might be drinking. I definitely have learned to get my sleep regardless of what he's doing, so that's one way. I also used to hold back from doing what I wanted to do sometimes if he didn't want to do didn't want to as well, or hold off making plans to do something until I knew what he wanted to do, but not anymore. If I want to visit friends or family or go somewhere or someone wants to make lunch plans or something, I don't clear it first. I go ahead and plan what I want to do, and if appropriate, invite him to join. Are you practicing detachment with love? OMG, detachment is crucial. Before I came to the program, I had figured out some middle finger detachment techniques. Detachment with love is really difficult and something that I need to work on constantly. But considering where I was a couple of years ago, I'm considering detachment with indifference to be an improvement when I can't quite get to love. A little smile there. Example, a couple of years ago, not so much anymore, he would go out most weekend nights until something like 3 a.m. In the beginning, I would drive myself crazy worrying the entire time he was gone. I wouldn't sleep until he was home. I made all kinds of rules like he had to call me once every hour and so on. Around the time I started coming to Al-Anon, I don't remember if it was before or after I actually started attending meetings, I figured out that I had to let that obsessive worrying go. At the time, the only way that I could do that was to not care what happened. I had to be able to say to myself, I don't care if he makes it home or not. I don't care if he dies in a car accident, etc. It was detachment with aggression and resentment. Now in that same situation, I can say, I hope that he makes it home safely, but I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to let it affect my behavior for the rest of the night. 
That piece about hoping that my loved one stays safe wasn't there before. What questions and issues are you struggling with now um, with respect to other family members such as children? I worry a lot about the effect this home life has on my children. In the beginning, I told myself that they were too young, but that excuse is getting harder to make. I find myself telling them that dad is sick when he's hungover or trying to interact with them while intoxicated. It's still relatively rare to encounter that issue as they're often asleep before he gets home or before he starts drinking. But man, they're smart. And they're like sponges. I wonder what I'm teaching them about acceptable roles in marriage and parenting. I've started to separate my loved one from the disease, and I know how to chalk some inappropriate behaviors up to the disease, but they don't have those tools. Am I teaching them that caretaking is only mom's responsibility? Because that's what they see right now. Am I teaching them that it's sometimes okay for a husband to be unkind to his wife? I don't want them to one day be in this same situation. I want them to know that it's not okay. But since I deal with it, they aren't seeing that. On the other hand, I recently attended a lecture on early childhood, zero to five years, development, and its impact on future addiction problems as the child grows. Divorce and living with addiction are both risk factors for future addiction. I don't have any answers here, but an endless list of questions rolling around in my mind. Mm. about um, struggling with the relationship you have to the alcoholic? I would say that by far the biggest problem in my relationship with my husband is a lack of intimacy, physical or otherwise, and that is directly related to the alcohol problem in a couple of ways. Re, earlier answer about detachment, when I was in the I don't care phase of detachment, I had to put up emotional barriers in order to function. Since I'm living with active addiction, those barriers do still serve me to an extent. They act as a protection from disappointment, and without them, my loved one might be subject to a lot more anger and negativity from me. But now that I have more tools at my disposal, I'm trying to take down some of those walls that have been created. Side note to Spencer, your discussion of your anniversary amends to your wife really affected me in regards to this. Uh, and, and reply to Jen from Spencer, uh, you're way ahead of me. <laughs> I, there was no way I could have done that while she was still drinking. Just could not have. The problem, though, is that my loved one is not in recovery. Sorry. The problem, though, that is that since my loved one is not in recovery, he has a lot of resentment toward me for making myself emotionally unavailable. And when I try to reach out, I feel like I'm often met with resentment and resistance that I interpret as punishment for putting up the barriers in the first place. And as my loved one's way of saying that our relationship will not be conducted on my terms alone, even when I'm trying to make things better. So the physical aspect of the marriage has also suffered at some point, and I don't really remember when. I instituted a boundary that I was not going to engage in physical intimacy with my spouse while he was in a state of intoxication. I can't quite say what my reasoning was for that at the time, other than it felt like a good boundary. Maybe it was punishment in the beginning. My rationale for it has evolved, though. As I mentioned in my intro, the alcoholic side of my spouse was one I was not familiar with, and when he was in a state of intoxication, I felt like I was dealing with a stranger. Being the person of good moral values that I am, I did not want to engage in that particular behavior with someone who felt like a stranger to me. So that became my rationale for a while. It has since evolved again to the point I'm at now. Unfortunately, the alcoholic in my spouse is no longer a stranger, so that reasoning is gone. But now I feel that when my spouse wants to initiate physical intimacy while intoxicated, it is a selfish act meant only to serve his needs and wants and has nothing to do with mine. At this time, I think that physical intimacy should be about both partners and not all one-sided, so I'm not interested in participating when I feel that selfish sort of motive. This boundary, however, sometimes leads my spouse to resent me, further damaging the situation. 
And, and Jen, I want to thank you really, um, for your openness and honesty. And I know, um, I know that last part, um, was probably difficult to write, uh, was a little difficult to read. Um, but I think I, I know from talking to other members of, um, my groups that, you know, this has been a problem for some of them. Uh, it was definitely was a problem for me. And, uh, I, uh, I remember one, um, one person sharing that uh, when when her loved one uh, wanted to uh, initiate physical intimacy while they were while he was uh, uh, intoxicated, that she felt like somebody he had picked up in a bar, and she didn't want to feel that way. And and uh, um, you know, and that's uh, that's one of those things that you know we don't talk about a lot, and but that uh, um, I think people will definitely identify with. Um, again. There's a lot in here that uh, that I identify with. Um, we're going to take a little break now. The song that I want to play is Joey by Concrete Blonde. Um, and I have to say, uh, I w- there's a there will be a link to the video uh, on the website. It will be at therecoveryshow.com slash 70, because this is episode 70. Uh, and the, to me, the video really clarifies the connection of the song to um, alcoholism or to at least to, to drinking uh, and the chorus, uh, the chorus at the end expresses a feeling that I came to um, in the journey that that my loved one and the program took me on. The chorus reads, "And if you're somewhere drunk and passed out on the floor, oh Joey, I'm not angry anymore." And that really speaks to me because there was a moment in which I found myself able to lovingly detach. Um, my loved one from her disease. Uh, and that came when she was passed out, um, literally. And, and I was standing there and I saw her as the, the lovely person that she is in the grips of a horrible disease. And I knew that I loved her, even that I hated to, as I hated the alcoholism that was uh, running her life.
Well, the next the next person up here is uh, is you, Maria. I was like to to start out by uh, by understanding, um, you know, what your situation uh, was at the time that you were living with with active alcoholism. If you can just say a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so I, so my um, alcoholic is my husband, and uh, we had been living together for I think about. 12 years before I came into the program and that was all it was pretty much all active alcoholism I mean it it may have started out as problem drinking and then kind of progressed and then became official alcoholism uh you know to really bad you know whatever mm-hmm. um but yeah so um yeah so it was it it was rough, and by the time I got into the program, I had pretty much run out of ideas. I was just like, I don't know what else to do. Like, this is crazy. This is, you know, just like living with, like, the chaos and the anger and the, like, arguments that happened, like, every other day. And uh, just, there was just so many, so many problems and issues, and I just had kind of lost, uh, just lost it. Like, I just didn't know what else to do. So I came to these meetings and I was, I mean, I knew that they, they didn't promise that the alcoholics would get sober, but I, it still kind of struck me as odd that we spent all this time talking about things that were, um, kind of esoteric and abstract and like serenity and like gratitude and joy. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm in the list. I am in the trenches here, people. Like, I have crazy people that are, like, arguing things that make no sense with me, like, all day, every day, not helping with anything basic around the house. You know, because of the the drunkenness, there were a lot of, you know, accidental breakings of dishes and whatever. And it's just like, I, I have no time to talk about serenity. Like, what what is this thing? I mean, like, I kind of was expecting this whole Al-Anon thing to be like, that's what we do is we talk about how to live with active alcoholism and like, you know, tips of what to do, how to manage all of this. And so I was a little... um I mean, granted, I came in and I had a lot of uh, resentment and anger issues anyway. <laughs> so I finally had a place where, you know, as as we talked about earlier in the show, like being listened to was great. Um, having a place to be listened to was great. But then I was still kind of annoyed that that, you know, there wasn't a lot of like, here's what you do. And here's how to handle all of the crazy that's like in your house every day, you know. Um but you did keep coming. I did keep coming, but I, I kind of, I think I had kind of like, I, I didn't have anywhere better to go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it was like, well, and I would catch like little bits of things like, you know, there'd be like a whole meeting, which like an hour would go by and like maybe somewhere in that hour, someone would allude to something that maybe in passing would have been like a story of like actual living with actual active drinking and and how they dealt with it and i would like pick up a little something but i was like why is this not like the whole topic like so anyway i'm really glad that we're doing this show about uh living with active alcoholism because especially in the beginning i felt like it was not talked enough about um and you know that's that's a that's an interesting and, and an important observation because i know that as as i have come into recovery that you know, that, that importance diminished Mm -hmm. and, and, 
sort of the the change me part of the program got more important and and often that is where we put the focus mm-hmm. and to the to the point that when when I'm in a meeting and there is somebody new in the meeting and you know some meetings will do a first step table or a first step talk whatever when when there's newcomers and some don't that I try to you know say we're talking about I don't know you know the ninth step about making amends and and I know that when I was new I could not see any relevance of that whatsoever to the situation I was in. You probably felt the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I often will try to pull out uh, something from my experience where, um, you know, I, I used that tool um, to help me live with alcoholism, to live with the alcoholic, to, to try to connect it to something that um, the new person, uh, might identify with a little more strongly than this, wow, I'm such a better person now stuff <laughs> yeah. that we get to sometimes. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that's happened with me too. Like at, the longer I've been in the program, um, and as situ- the situation has changed, um, the, the working on myself part of it has been become more and more important and I can understand now. But, um, yeah, in, in the beginning, like it seemed like, um, like it seemed like somehow a lot of the people that were in the meetings that I was going to had maybe um come into Al-Anon as their qualifier went into AA and so they were kind of both starting recovery at the same time and so it was kind of a different situation like they weren't in this place where you know I'm in Al-Anon <laughs> no one's in AA even though I really want them to be yeah. you know um yeah and and I think you know, of the two stories we, we, we heard already today, you know, one of them, um, the person, um, the, the addict is, is potentially in recovery, at least knows that it's there and has been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in the other one, it sounds like not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, um, well, we'll get to my story <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and what happened in, in, in my case. Uh, yeah. And, and, and then there's the people who left. Mm-hmm. I can't deal with the situation. Right, I'm leaving. Right, and, who left their alcoholic. It's, I mean, it's yeah. harder. I think it was harder for me to identify with them too, because I was not leaving. Right, right. Yeah. And I think also when I first came in, I was really like, I really didn't want anyone to tell me that I should be leaving, which fortunately no one did. Um, but that was kind of a fear in the beginning. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, I mean, when I came in to the program, I was, I was trying to figure out like all these just basic things that were really hard to figure out. Like, how do you run a household when one person refuses to do their share of the work that they will, you know, routinely agree? Oh, yeah, sure. I'll do the dishes. I'll do the, you know, whatever. And then like it never happened. And it just, it led to like, I just got so resentful like over the years of this. And, I just kind of didn't know what to do and I would try different approaches. I think for, for many years, actually, my approach was, well, if you're not going to do it, then I won't do it either. And then at least I won't have to be mad at you because it's partly my fault. And then like, I'm not, you know, oh, having a, to do that's more. Interesting. 
Um, and so we just lived in this like pit hellhole of a house. Like none of the dishes were ever washed. I mean, you know, it would get the dishes would get washed as they were needed, like immediately for cooking. So like mm-hmm. there'd be like a two minute period where it, things would be clean, and then they'd be immediately dirty again. And um, that was just kind of how it was. But I it, that I've, probably didn't contribute to any kind of serenity, huh? No, but it but it it kind of but it, at the time it seemed like a choice between that or. I do it all, and then I'll be really resentful that I had to do all of the work, and then they didn't have to do any of the work, and, you know, so I, it was seemed like a trade-off in which I would end up less resentful that way. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so I kind of went with that approach of, like, fine, I won't do it either <laughs> for years, and then, you know, eventually I got really tired of that, and I tried different things, and I tried the opposite. I tried, like, fine, I'll do all of the cleaning, and then at least we'll have, you know, I'll be resentful, but at least we'll have a clean house, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I tried that for, you know, a little while. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, yeah, we had a clean house, but I was incredibly resentful and just so pissed off the whole time. And, you know, I just didn't really know how to, how to deal with this. And so, you know, one of the first things that I, um, I remember, uh, coming to an Al-Anon meeting early on and just kind of ranting about this, like, <laughs> what do I do? I mean, I, I I try to go through the house and clean things up and straighten and organize and like literally five minutes later he'll come in go where's my wallet and like open all the drawers turn up all the couch cushions like you know everything that I just try to do gets undone and it was just like I'm living with a tornado like I'm not mm. I'm not getting anywhere all of my efforts are fruitless and this is just maddening and how do I live with this and um and uh so I did hear, um, you know, somebody did come up to me after the meeting and suggest that um, that maybe I could try figuring out which parts of the house were, which things really, really bothered me and which parts I could let slide and try to focus on the things that drove me really crazy when they weren't done and do those things, but do them for myself. And I was just like, oh, I've never considered this. Like, I've never thought about this. I'm never doing this for myself. I'm do you know, I always thought housework had to be done because it had to be done. And, you know, I never really thought of it as self-care. Um, but, you know, I was like, well, I've tried everything else. I'm out of ideas. I might as well try this. And so I tried that and it really, it helped. It helped a lot. And so, um, uh, yeah, that it was just, so at this point you're you're coming to meetings, you're sort of listening to the message, you're you're um you're talking some about your situation about the about the things you were struggling with. Mm-hmm. At, um yeah. Sort of uh, the consequences of living with with uh with alcoholism uh sort of on on your life. Uh Yeah. I can I ask if, you know, what was the, the emotions that you had around your husband and his drinking with, with, you know, in like fear, anger, resentment? Oh, I mean, we talked about there resentment. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of resentment. I mean, I was just boiling over uh-huh. with like resentment uh-huh. and anger because, you know, I just felt like it was all of the burden of everything was all on me. And, you know, I just didn't know how to get out of that because, you know, we would talk about it and he'd make promises to do stuff. And then like, it wouldn't happen 
or it would sort of halfway happen and they'd make a big deal about like, oh, I did the dishes and I'd come home and they're like half done. And, and it's just like, you know what? Like, ah, uh, just, <laughs> uh-huh. did I mention resentment? Was, was he mostly a, a <laughs> home drinker? Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't have to worry about too much yeah. about DUI or, or uh, accidents or. Well, mm. I mean, not, maybe okay. some, but maybe not, maybe not as much, um, <laughs> as, I mean, as that, people I in other that, situations. Again, my story, you know, there was some fear there. Um, yeah, yeah. There was, there was, there was some fear, but it was mostly anger and resentment. I think were were kind of the main ones for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so as as you came into the program and and you started um, picking up some of these tools, like for example, um, the one you just talked about, do do the things that are important to you and do them for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, what what other uh, what other tools do you remember finding? Um, you know, early on or a little bit later that that were helpful. Um, well, uh, I mean, I remember getting that message that I couldn't control other people, um, early, early on in the program. And, you know, that was hard to accept, but, but ultimately I knew it was true. I knew that I couldn't make him stop drinking. I couldn't make him do the housework or whatever. Um, and so just, just trying to stay out of things that weren't really my business but I had always taken them as my business, you know, historically for years and years. Um, and just learning to like let things go and not say the things that were on my mind. Like, like I knew I was supposed to be having these positive thoughts and not having all of these negative thoughts about like, why don't you just do the dishes already? You know, but, um, but, but, you know, it's like progress, not perfection. Right. So I couldn't go, you know, totally to where I needed to be. Um, but I started with like, just don't say it, just don't say it out loud, the things that you're thinking, cause they're not helpful. So, um, that was a tool for me, just learning to keep my mouth shut when I wanted to say something that I knew wasn't going to help the situation. Um, that was kind of huge. Um, and also just like learning to not pick up the rope. Um, that, I guess that was one thing that, that Jen talked about that I could really relate to, um. Cause that really helped me too. Cause yeah. there were a lot of, there were a lot of arguments, a lot of which made no sense. You know, there would be random accusations of something illogical. And, you know, I would always feel like I had to respond and then it would spiral into this big dramatic argument and it was horrible. And, you know, just realizing that I, learning that I had options and I didn't really have to get sucked into that mm-hmm. was very liberating that, you know, I, we could just, go from what it had been to, um, you know, he would start throwing out the rope and I'd just leave it there. And, and then you you can't have an argument when only, well, you kind of can. Um, <laughs> but it's not as bad when only one person is arguing. Yep. So that, that helped. Um, that helped a lot. So yeah, trying to not control, not pick up the rope, um, learning when I was enabling and when I, and, figuring out how to stop. Um, there were a lot of cases where, um, you know, there would be bills for stuff around the house that would come in his name that I knew he would never get around to paying. And so I would just deal with all of them myself because it seemed like, well, this has to be paid. You know, we, they're going to send us late fees and cut off whatever it is. And, uh, you know, we can't have that happen. So I have to be the one to step in and make sure all the bills get paid. And I realized, you know, I, 
after coming to the program, like, that's not my responsibility. If it's got his name on it, that's his. It's not mine. And yeah, bad things will happen, but maybe they need to because those are the natural consequences of, of the action of not taking care of it. And maybe, you know, I have been kind of shielding, shielding him from that. And so I kind of started paying much more attention to whose name was on the envelope when it came in. And if it was not my name, I would not deal with it. And, um, you know, did you, did you have, find some cases where maybe it was his name on the envelope, but the consequences were going to hit you? Oh yeah. Oh you, yeah. How do you deal with I mean, that, that was tricky. Cause that, that is the other tricky thing, especially, you know, when you're living with someone, when you're married to them, you own a house together. Like it's, you can't really, I mean, it's, it's hard to detach without the consequences also falling on yourself. Um, so there were cases where, it was like, well, these consequences are going to affect me too. You know, if this goes on long enough, they might just cut off the TV or they might just cut off the cell phones, including my cell phone. Uh, you know, but, but fortunately it, it seemed like it had happened that the, the bills that were in his name were things that I cared less about, like the TV. And so I was like, you know what? If they cut it off, who cares? Like, whatever. Like, I, I watch I'll less TV anyway, <laughs> you know? So I, yeah. Yeah. So it was just like, I, I, I kind of felt like the potential consequence hitting me was sort of less bad than the enabling. Right. And so I, also, I kind of, I also hear that being about choices. It. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, and, and I, we, we hear that a lot. And, and I always need to hear that for some reason, you know, I forget I have choices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been in the yeah. program. 12 years? Okay. And I forget I have choices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, things are easy <laughs> and, to forget somehow. And, and, and I, you know, it's really good for me to go to a meeting and somebody says, yes. And, and I'm always reminded that I have choices. Like, oh yeah, choices. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, we actually had this, um, a few months into my Al-Anon, um, program, I decided, you know, that we had, we had hashed out who's technically whose responsibilities was what, it, you know, it's just that it never happened. Um, and the garbage was one of the things that he was technically supposed to do. And, um, and I ended up deciding, you know what? I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it week after week. And I'm just not going to do it, period. And we'll just see what happens. And fortunately, I have a really bad sense of smell. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, that, that works in my favor sometimes, including then. And so I just, I just set this boundary. I was like, you know what? This is sort of how he trained me to do everything was by just not doing it ever. Yeah. And so then it got to a point of like, well, if I ever wanted it done, I'd have to do it. Yeah. It's like, this can work in reverse, buddy. <laughs> you know, so I just didn't, didn't do it for, and it was, it was pretty bad. I mean, even, even given our uh, standoffs before on uh, house cleaning issues, like it, it got pretty bad. But, um, but eventually, he just started taking out the garbage. And so I was like, all right, victory is mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. But but anyway, I mean, victory in that he did it, but also victory in that I learned to stop enabling. And I didn't have to do these things that were not my responsibility. Right. So right. it was it was good. There were a lot of experiments, I think, in that early era. Um, I mean, one of the... <laughs> sadly, like, one of the good things about living with active alcoholism in my mind at the time anyway, was that like 
Well, it's like it's already shot to hell anyway, so it's I can try all of these different things. It's not like anything's going to make it worse. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort right. of that you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. So, I might as well try these experiments. Right. And, if um, you if you hear somebody talking about something that worked for them and you can say, "Well, that might help," and it doesn't it doesn't it, seem like it's going to it's right. going to hurt. So, Right. Uh-huh. Um, so, how about detachment. Yeah. Um, were um, you able to come to detachment of some form? Maybe, maybe just somewhat. I mean, that was a tricky one. I think also, um, well, and the detachment that I did come to, I think, was helped by kind of learning more about alcoholism and realizing that it really is a disease and that everyone who has this disease acts the exact same way. And that kind of helped me realize, like, no, it's not personal. It's not... Um, you know, as I had previously thought that it was just some kind of attempt of personally ruining my life, you know, it was, it was just that this is the, these are the symptoms and this is the disease and that's how it always goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And hearing all these other people who had nothing to do with us, that they were going through the exact same thing, helped me realize that, yeah, it wasn't personal, that that was just just how it went and it helped me to kind of detach a little bit from the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, um, I, I had a conversation just a little while ago with, a um, one of, one of our listeners, uh, f- about, uh, tradition five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you'll be hearing from, from this person in the tradition five episode, but, uh, tradition five says, uh, each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves, by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. And you just talked about, you know, the importance that understanding mm-hmm. had in helping you to develop some detachment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Understanding the disease yeah. um, and how it affects people. and. And I will say that that was also true for me. Yeah, that was key. I mean, I remember at one point real early on feeling like I had no choices. And the only choice I really had was, well, do I get mad now or do I bottle it up and then get ma- really mad later? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was the only wow. choice I saw. Oh, that's a hell of a choice. And I kind of I kind of knew that on some level that like the answer was to somehow not get mad in the first place at all. But I just didn't know how to do that. But then I kept coming and like the more I learned about you know, that it really is a disease, kind of, that was what helped me to not get mad in the first place, was mm-hmm. to help me understand what what was going on. Or maybe if you do get mad, you get mad at the disease rather than at the person, right. which is different. Right. I mean, if you think about maybe a loved one who's diagnosed with cancer, I mean, you can be really angry, which is the first stage of grief, right? You can be really angry about the fact that they have cancer. But very often, there's not any anger at the person. Yeah. Um, it's it's just like, I don't know, anger at the world, anger at the disease. Why does cancer have to exist, damn it? Right, um, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but it's it's easier to, uh, to still love the person than with something like alcoholism where, you know, because it affects people's behaviors, it's it's a lot easier to, to take it personally and to, mm-hmm. to blame the person for, for their behavior. Right, right. Um, and then I think, you know, the other thing that really helped me was, and it took me a little bit longer to get into this side of things, but to really start seeing my own part in it all. Um, Hmm. 
And that, you know, I didn't want to look at that because I wanted to be angry and resentful <laughs> at the alcoholic because it was all his fault. Um, and then, the, you know, the longer I went to meetings, the more I realized, you know, it's not entirely and I'm contributing to this and I have options to stop contributing and maybe I need to do that. Um, so, yeah, um, that was definitely also key, just realizing that, like, I had somehow gotten to be really manipulative and indirect and so learning to just communicate what i needed in a direct polite sort of way was like this foreign concept to me um but but i knew that i needed to do it and so doing that really helped um and uh also i think it was jen who had talked about the serenity prayer um that also really helped me early on just just focusing on what i could and couldn't control um, because I, I think I had pretty much had it all backwards before. Like everything I couldn't control, I would rail about. And then anything that I could control, I would find excuses and not bother with, you know, before the program. And so, you know, kind of realizing where there were things where I could take more responsibility and actually create a better outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Put the energy where it actually does. Some exactly. Good, huh? Exactly. So, yeah. So that stuff, self-care, live and let live, all of that. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, fortunately, um, uh, so, so we, I had, it had been like 12 years of living together before I came into the program. And then after about a little over a year of, of me being in the program, he did end up finding sobriety on his own and his own way. Um, and that was uh, just really great, and things are a lot better now. But it's, you know, sometimes I think about it, and I'm like, hmm, is it better because I'm better, or is it better because he's better? And it's it's hard to tell, really. Um, but I could definitely tell, even in that year when he was still drinking and had been drinking even more, especially since I had stopped, like, you know, getting on his case about it, mm-hmm. Um uh, like things kind of got worse there for a while as far as his drinking, but as far as our relationship, I could tell that it had gotten a lot better, hmm. which, you know, kind of points to like, hmm, if he didn't change and I'm the only one who changed, then maybe I was contributing to this all along. Whoops. Uh-huh. But, um, but yeah, it was, I definitely saw the power of the program that way. Just kind of seeing that things were a lot more civil between us. Um, you know, when I made an effort to be civil myself, um, it'd be more likely that I'd get that in return. So, yeah. All right. Thank you, Maria. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, uh, my turn, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. So I came in, I came into Al-Anon, um, in 2002, which meant that we had been living together pretty much for 22 years at that point, 21 and a half, maybe. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about this before. I, 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 a good friend of mine has talked about, um, when she met her, her current husband and the person whose um, behavior eventually made her hit her knees in Al-Anon. And she says, yeah, we met each other. And like six weeks later, we were engaged. And, you know, a few weeks later, we got married. And it seemed like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. (laughs) And I think about, you know, when I met, uh, when I met my wife, um, I was actually um, married to somebody else at the time, uh, who had left 
the state that I was living in and gone a couple thousand miles away for a job. And it was pretty clear that that, that marriage was over, but it wasn't officially over yet. Um, and, uh, I think, I think I moved in with her maybe, maybe as long as two weeks after we met, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, I still had my own place. Uh, but I remember my mother commenting once that, wow, it seems like you're never home when we call like, Oh yeah, I'm out a lot. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Lying is a symptom of the disease, right? Um, yeah. So, um, but I didn't, I didn't recognize her drinking as a problem for a long time. And, and I think that it wasn't a problem at that point. I think, I think she would say she drank alcoholically since she started drinking, but that, um, you know, it didn't start to really become an issue until, um, I think about 10 years before I came into Al-Anon that it just got progressively, progressively worse. And she started trying to do something about it. And I was not willing to admit that, that, that the problem was that bad. You know, I, my thought was, well, she just needs to drink less. <laughs> Isn't that obvious? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just don't drink as much. Right. Uh, I really, at that point I had absolutely no understanding. Um, not at all. And, and I was not willing to apply the label alcoholic because to me that was, you know, some guy sitting on the sidewalk with a 40 ounce or in a paper bag. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what an alcoholic was, uh, just shows how much I had to learn really. Um, so anyway, fast forward, I, I did come into the program. I did come in for myself. Um, I finally realized that those three C's, I heard those three C's. And, and that I had been trying to do something that was not in my power to do. Um, but before that, there was a lot of, you know, the same stuff everybody else has talked about. Um, of, uh, I was, I was sort of, um, is that the dog? Yeah. Oh, well. I was a sort of a passive aggressive controller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I couldn't say directly, Jake, what are you doing? <laughs> Cut it out. <laughs> Um, I was sort of a passive aggressive controller. I couldn't, couldn't say directly, you know, don't drink. Um, so I would do things like I would very, very noisily slam the wine bottles into the recycling bin. Um, because, you know, clearly if she, you know, heard them, she would know how much she was drinking and then it wasn't, wasn't appropriate. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think that worked. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it was somewhat effective in, um, you know, in the way that like punching a pillow is effective in, in dealing with anger that mm-hmm. it, it, it gave me a, a target. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was not effective at all in terms of, uh, reducing drinking. Um, some of the things that I struggled with for a long time, even after I came into the program, or maybe especially after I came into the program and realized, you know, that, uh, um, you know, I needed to set boundaries and was, was things like, you know, we had two kids, uh, who were in 2002, I guess they were 11. Uh, you know, so like, I didn't want her driving with the kids when she was drunk, but, um, you know, sometimes they needed to go places and I wasn't able to take them. And so what do you do? Mm, Yeah. Um, I never really, um, totally resolved that one. I think the way I dealt with that was just really trying to be available. Um, mostly she drank in the evening, so that helped. Mm Um, I would, I would worry a lot. She, um, would travel out of state to visit her family. And, uh, I would worry a lot about what was going to happen between, 
you know, like between the airport and the hotel, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she's driving on the, on the highways, uh, and, uh, one of her drinking places was airplanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she referred to it once as the flying bar. Um, and, uh, um, that, and, and, you know, I mean, I could recognize my powerlessness there. Um, you know, all I could do was worry as if worrying was gonna, was gonna fix anything or, or help anything. And, and the ironic thing is that, um, you know, the one time when she was traveling to visit her family that she got in a fairly serious accident was after she had found sobriety. Um, all those, you know, I, I don't understand it. You know, there's this saying about how God protects fools and drunks. And, um, I think, you know, God was looking out for her cause, um, uh, you know, there was a time I remember once when her sister called and said, I can't get a hold of her. She's supposed to be over here at my house. It's three in the afternoon. I don't know where she is. Um, and I said, well, I don't either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, but what I figured was that, that, um, she had probably, you know, drunk a lot the night before and was still asleep. And I think that is actually what, what the case was. Um, you know, and, and those things just kind of were like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Um, and there was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of resentment. There was a lot of anger. Uh, there was a lot of fear and, and, you know, and, and anger for me, anger often comes out of fear and resentment and frustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not surprisingly, I was a very angry person. So after I came into the, after I came into the program, you know, I started trying to apply some of these principles. I started, um, you know, one of the things that, that I picked up really early was this not enabling thing, you know, like, but again, there's a dilemma. Okay. It's like, you know, it's nine o'clock at night. Uh, she's been drinking and she ran out. She wants more. Can I go to the grocery store and get her some, please? Well, you know, not enabling says I shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But if I don't, is she going to get in the car and try to drive there herself? And what's going to happen if, if she does? Um, I think there were times when I, when I gave in, um, to my fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Mostly I would say, no, I'm, I, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, probably she got in the car and drove. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we do live a few blocks from the store, so maybe she could walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah. and, that you know, those are... Um, and, I, and I also learned that, that different situations called for different boundaries. Uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there was one time when we were traveling and, and uh, I arranged the situation so that we didn't make it to the wine store that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she ran out, um, and, you know, was not able to achieve her desired level. And as it turned out her necessary level at that point in her, um, addiction and the consequences the next day were not pleasant for anybody. Uh, and of course that was a day when we were driving. Mm. Um, yeah. Trapped and, uh, in a small area. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, it, it didn't happen in the car, but, um, it was not pleasant. And when we got to the friends we were visiting, um, we had to make an excuse about how she had some kind of stomach flu or something. And, um, and I learned that, um, you know, in the, it, that for sort of for the health of everybody, um, and I think, you know, for her physical health, I mean, there's, that's very dangerous to, you know, sort of involuntary withdrawal from alcohol can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't really understand that. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's a whole bunch of things that, that I sort of learned. But the big thing that, that was working for me um, was detachment. And I started out with the, um, 
you know, the, as, as the phrase goes, the middle finger detachment, you know, that, mm-hmm. well, F you, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm not going to care. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, and I don't remember exactly like time frames anymore because this was a while ago. Um, but I do remember it was a couple of years after I had come into Al-Anon and I had been really actively working the Al-Anon program. I got a sponsor. Um, I started working the steps. Um, and at that point, I, I don't think we had the, the group that I was working the steps with. I don't think we had gotten all the way through, but we were, we were quite a ways in. I had done an inventory certainly by then. Um, and the inventory and the steps that come after the inventory, which is, you know, steps four through seven and then eight and nine, um, where in nine we, we start making amends. Uh, those are where I really put my significant recovery to that. Um, you know, I started getting better. I started, you know, being able to use some tools and I started being, being more calm and I started being able to sleep at night, but I didn't really start, um, significantly changing until I got into those steps. And anyway, so as I, as I mentioned when, when I was introducing the song, um, you know, one night I, I, I looked at her as she was passed out on the bed and, and I just said, you know, there's the person that I love. Um, she's still in there, uh, and she has this disease and I was able to, to love her and, and hate the disease. And it sounds so trite. It sounds, you know, it's that, that slogan, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. But when it actually happened to me, there was nothing trite or trivial about it. Um, and, 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 and so this is, this is what loving detachment was for me that, you know, I could, mm-hmm. I could still love her. Um, and, uh, even though I couldn't see very much of her most of the time, mm-hmm. most of, most of the time, what I saw was the, the drunk person, mm-hmm. the, the addict person, um, that, that overlay that, that her disease had put on her personality. Um, you know, Jen talked about, making the choice, making the choice every day to, to stay. I, I don't think I even had that level of clarity. What I did have was, um, the, un, the, the understanding, the assertion that I had heard from people that, um, I didn't have to choose if I didn't know what the choice was that I wanted to make. Mm. Um, which is a little bit different from saying today I will stay here. Um, I was saying today I'm not ready to choose. Um, and, and when I had that, that, that moment of insight, um, of, of being able to lovingly detach her from her disease, that, that also was the moment at which I was able to choose to say, yes, I can stay in this marriage, that I want to stay in this marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, you know, in those two years, I had found a way of living that meant I could, I could live with active alcoholism without it driving me crazy. Which is impressive. <laughs> I have to add. <laughs> um, and, and I still don't really know. I don't know how it happened. I, I, I can't point to any one. I can, I can point to that moment, but that moment was, was the end point of a process. Mm-hmm. And I can't say, well, this helped and this other thing didn't because it was all part of the process. And, 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 and again, I don't remember if it was, was Jen or Julie said, you know, trusting the process, um, that, I had come to trust the process. Um, I think I, I mentioned this in, in, uh, when I was talking about step three that, you know, um, made a decision to turn my will in my life over the care of a higher power that, that at least at the beginning, you know, sort of the process of the program was, 
was a higher power that I could turn my will and my life over to, to the care of. And, and I had, um, because I continued to come and I continued to work it. And clearly I had made that decision, um, that, that this was something that, that I was committing to that was going to help me. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's far enough back that, you know, individual stories are not where I am anymore. Um, but it, it, I guess the other thing that I, that I, that I can talk about, um, is sort of the, the end of, the end of the story of her drinking, um, from my point of view, uh, which is that there came a time when, um, she was drinking a lot, um, and not really doing anything else. She had lost her job. Uh, another one of those consequences. Mm-hmm. And, I had to, I had to, um, the only thing that I could do, um, besides being a loving husband, uh, was to, you know, I just was there watching. Um, I had no idea what the end of the story was going to be. Um, but I think a couple of things, and we talked about hope a few weeks ago and, and, you know, there was hope. There was, there was always the possibility of change. Um, there was not the expectation of change. There was not, I never said, oh, you know, tomorrow she'll stop or next week or next month. Um, I just said, she knows recovery's there. Um, and when it gets painful enough for her, she'll find it. And, and, um, you know, if I was hoping for anything, it was that, you know, she was going to find recovery before the disease killed her. Um, and as it happened, it didn't, and she did, (laughs) um, you know, she had her moment of clarity, um, and, uh, and I had nothing to do with it and, and I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. Uh, and that's not something I could have said 12 years ago when I figuratively at least crawled through the door into Al-Anon. Um, and you know, the, I had the program, I had I had, I think, an understanding that, although I don't think I could have articulated it at the time, but I had an understanding that whatever happened, I would be okay. Mm. Um, yeah. I also wanted to, um, I, I guess, uh, a little bit of identification with um, what, what Jen had to say uh, about physical intimacy, because I also found that very difficult when she was drinking, um, I hadn't, I hadn't been able to really put it into words as, as clearly as she did, or as my other friend did that, um, you know, that person was not, was not the person that I loved. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what it was about. Yeah. Um, this is some stranger. Um, and I wasn't able to articulate that. All I knew was that it didn't feel right. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it must be something that I talked about at one point, at some point in, in a meeting or something, because I remember um, standing by the, the coffee back when we had coffee in the Wednesday night wow. meeting. This was before my time, yeah. apparently. Um, I don't remember there ever and, being coffee. Uh, and another person coming over to me and, and asking, do you, do you have trouble, um, you know, making love? Because I do. And I said, yeah, I do. And, and we, we had a conversation about it later. Um, you know, just, in the, in the sharing of, 
you know, something that is really difficult mm-hmm. to understand and to deal with and to accept. Um, you know, there was some freeing there that I'm not the only person this is happening to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what I hope that, you know, you as a listener maybe can take away from this episode is that one or more of us um, has had an experience, has had a feeling that you're struggling with um, and that you're not alone, that it's not just you and that, you know, we found a way through um, and, and all of us so far have found a way through without, you know, throwing away the person. Um, and, uh, and, and I use that sort of deliberately. Um, and I know that people who have made a decision to leave a relationship, an alcoholic relationship are not making that decision lightly and they're not, they're not throwing away a person, but sometimes that's what it felt like I needed to do. Mm-hmm. So Maria, you picked some music here. Um, you want to tell us about this? Um, yeah. So, um, now we can take a break and listen to, uh, Down In It by Nine Inch Nails. Um, so I picked this song because it, it's, it's a pretty dark song. Um, and I feel like it really captures that, that feeling of angst and just pain and frustration and desperation. Um, that, that all of those feelings that I had when I was living with, active alcoholism, like, before I had any recovery. Um, so I feel like the tone of the song really kind of um, captures that well. Um, so some of the lyrics, uh, um, he says, and everything I never liked about you is kind of seeping into me. And that, that to me, it kind of speaks to me about, like, taking on the negative behaviors of the alcoholic myself. Like, you know, not necessarily the things I never liked about you, but the things I never liked about your alcoholic behavior are sort of seeping into me. Um, I could, I could relate to that, that, like, somehow, even though I wasn't even drinking, all of those behaviors that I, I hated were suddenly, somehow I was becoming that person without without wanting to. Um, and, uh, yeah, so some more lyrics. Um, I was up above it, now I'm down in it. And that, to me, kind of speaks of, of going from, like, a more healthy place, a place of more detachment and kind of living in the moral high ground to just somehow sinking into this, like, enmeshed, entrapped um, place of just, of just sinking to that level of behavior, mm-hmm. of... You know, there's all this horrible stuff going on, and rather than being above it, now I'm just as bad. And I, yeah, so, um, yeah, and then some more of the lyrics here. I used to be so big and strong. I used to know my right from wrong. I used to never be afraid. I used to be somebody. I used to have something inside. Now, now just this hole that's open wide. I used to want it all. I used to be somebody. Um, and I feel like this could be seen as like a list of things lost as a result of living with active drinking. Um, like, um, especially this, like, I used to know my right from wrong kind of sticks out to me because like I, you know, I did. And then somehow living with all of this craziness for so many years, like, um, I mean, I think as you were just talking about Spencer, like some of those like really difficult problems, like, do you, do you enable or do you, 
let them drive drunk. Like it's like it's like this impossible situation, and like everything you do seems wrong, and it, you used to know right from wrong, and then suddenly like being in this crazy situation for so long, it's like you just you don't even know anymore. Like I didn't even know anymore what what to do, or or I would have myself convinced that things that I knew were wrong were right because the situation was so extreme that in this case, no, now it's right. And, you know, so everything just got really muddled. And um, so I feel like this is kind of a list of, of um, you know, we say that, that Al-Anon is sort of a, a place where we come to recover from the effects of someone else's drinking. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is kind of a list of those effects. Mm. Um, and, and this is kind of why I need to come to Al-Anon is to regain all of those things that, like, I used to have, but then I lost it. And so this Al-Anon is where I go to try to get them back again. Um, so anyway, with that, I guess we can play it. Go ahead and play the song. Looking forward, uh, some of our upcoming topics include recovery on the road, uh, which is how do you take recovery with you when you travel? Um, I have an interview with uh, that that will probably be publishing as a separate episode, and uh, then it would be really uh, interesting to hear from you uh, how you have uh, taken your recovery with you when you're not at home, when you're not in your home group. Uh, and... Uh, going to talk about Tradition 5 because, hey, May is coming up. Um, and for me, Tradition 5 really captures the essence of Al-Anon because it, it talks about how how we do Al-Anon. You know, I read it earlier. Um, you know, what is our purpose? Our purpose is to help families of alcoholics. And by families, we mean people who are connected 
to uh, an alcoholic uh, or generally also to, to an addict, although that's not the words. Um, you know, and we heard that in Julie's story that, you know, the person that really dragged her down was, is not a member of her family, but it's a member of her, you know, her relationship family, her, per, her, her connection family. Uh, and the, the effect was just as strong, um, as you heard. Uh, so tradition five, but it also tells us how we do this. We do this by practicing the 12 steps. We do this by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives. And we do this by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. And this, you know, our step 12, carry this message to others. So I really would love to hear um, your thoughts, your experience, strength, and hope on, on either of these topics. Um, also planning uh, an upcoming show with uh, uh, some members who have young children and ha- the special challenges of living with alcoholism or addiction, maybe in the home or maybe no longer in the home, but, you know, still connected because uh, the, the alcoholic, the addict is a spouse and thus co-parent of the children. Um, so I'll be talking with some some friends about that. Um, uh, you know, what are those particular challenges? And again, uh, your experiences is, uh, would be really welcome to add to that conversation. You can leave us a voicemail. You can send us an email. Uh, and Maria, how do people do that? Uh, well, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of living with active alcoholism or addiction, or next week's topic of, uh, yeah. you know, guess guess what, recovery on the road, or Tradition 5, or uh, we're not sure yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, if you have a topic you'd like to talk us, like us to talk about, let us know. And... Uh, all the information that you need, uh, contact information, uh, notes for each show, uh, the videos or links to the music that we play, it's all available on our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. Uh, check it out. This uh, episode will be at therecoveryshow.com slash 70. You can leave comments there. Um, we're always looking for uh, topic ideas or, you know, saying, yes, I, I really like this topic you haven't talked about yet. Can, can you do it soon rather than later? Um, we do listen. Um, I tend to have a fairly short attention span, uh, so often the, the most recent person to ask for something, uh, that's the one that I, I choose. Um, you know, I'm working on that, but uh, those squirrels are still very distracting. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's a metaphor. Um, <laughs> So uh, hop on over to therecoveryshow.com, enter the conversation there. Our phone number's there, our email address is there. Um, and, uh, you know, as you've heard over over the last few episodes, uh, it is possible to uh, to join our conversation, like literally join our conversation, uh, even though you don't live around here. Uh, you can join by phone or by Skype or uh, most recent conversation I had with somebody was on FaceTime. That worked pretty well, too. Uh, so if you've got one of those Apple thingies, you can do FaceTime, right? Uh, so uh, email to uh, feedback at com if you're interested in participating. Hey, do we have uh, voicemails, emails, comments this week? Um, yeah, we do. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So, okay. So Akilah sent some thoughts on earlier episodes and some song suggestions. 
Spencer, I finished listening to the Step 2 episode recently. There's a really good came-to-believe story on page 189 of how Al-Anon works from a scientist who wrestled with the spiritual nature of the program. As an addendum to my recent long voicemail about what is Al-Anon, I also keep coming back to meetings because this disease often manifests in unexpected areas of my life. I'm not sure if you've ever done done that feelings episode you joked about before, but so often for me, that's where I hit roadblocks. Going to meetings helps help me when I can't understand what is making me restless, irritable, and discontent. Listening to people share gives me so much insight into the wacky ways the effects of alcoholism shows up in my life. Also, you mentioned in that episode that meetings are different everywhere. I do want to point out that in my community, we don't have tables the way you mentioned about your meetings. The meetings here don't usually have more than 25 or so people, and that's considered a big meeting. Sometimes the groups will split into two if there's a larger number of people, 14, I think, to allow everyone time to share. That depends on the group conscience, of course. Some meetings I attend don't split up at all. And if the group does split up, the topic is the same because we don't split until after the chair has introduced the topic. I do have some thoughts on Tradition 4, but I can't wrangle them into an email before I have to head out. I do like what Paths to Recovery says on uh, page 171. In this tradition, I find balance, independence with consideration. Some music suggestions are Ordinary People by John Legend is an excellent is excellent for almost every topic having to do with recovery. It's just a reminder that we're all doing the best we can at times. It would have gone nicely with resentments, expectations, for- forgiveness, etc. You played Leanne Rhymes in one of the episodes, which made me think of the, that classic codependency song, How Do I Live? I love it, but you know. <laughs> also, Ease On Down the Road from The Wiz is excellent when you talk about when talking about easy does it or even keep coming back akila yeah thanks akila um i actually i don't think i'm i'm really familiar with uh any of those songs um so um i haven't had a chance to check them out yet but i definitely will uh, tim uh emailed us with some comments and also some music ideas keep those coming please spencer at all thanks for doing these podcasts i'm new to alanon and listening to the podcast in my car makes traffic a healing experience. Wow. I didn't know I had that power. Um, it's not me. It's God. Yeah. I feel like I've become friends with you and your co-hosts. I miss Kelly and Swetha, and I know the three of you, and I hope the three of you remain friends after whatever happened. I've shown many of my new Al-Anon friends how to download these shows. I'm amazed at the time you must be putting into this. The production quality is impressive. Thanks, Tim. Two musical suggestions from Hoobastank. Never There, Resentment and Blame, and If I Were You, Gratitude. I haven't played Hoobastank in a while. I'll have to go back and check them out. Um, we got a voicemail from Ian, which I will try to play right now. Hello. I just want you to know that I've been going over uh, lots of the early, very early episodes and uh, how appropriate they are still and how many times when I do listen to them uh, there's just more that's revealed uh, in their depth and breadth of coverage and um, the the emotional content of program work so uh, I sure appreciate your show uh, now more than ever thanks again Thanks, Ian. Um, and it's it's good to hear that we continue to deliver from the old stuff. Um, I feel like you know we did we did some good stuff back then too. 
Uh, absolutely. Sometimes better than what I'm doing now, I think. We'll see. Okay. Enough of that. Um, Julie, uh, uh, mentioned in one of her emails that, uh, one of her meetings has a list of, of do's and don'ts that they read. And I said, really? I haven't, I haven't seen these. So, uh, so she sent them and, and I'll read the do's and maybe you can read the don'ts, huh, Maria? Sure. So she says, do forgive, be honest with yourself, be humble, take it easy, tension is harmful, play, find recreation and hobbies, keep on trying whenever you fail, do learn the facts about alcoholism, attend Al-Anon meetings often, and pray. All right. And then the don't list says, don't be self-righteous. Try to dominate, nag, scold, and complain. Lose your temper. Try to push anyone but yourself. Keep bringing up the past. Keep checking up on the alcoholic. Wallow in self-pity. Make threats you don't intend to carry out. Be overprotective and be a doormat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Easier said than done, some of those, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Uh, But thanks for that, Julie. Uh, All right. Um, Well, uh you can listen live as a recording uh, today. That's not happening, but uh, normally we will be on live. You can click on the listen live link at the top of the page. We'll um, post the, try to post the time ahead of time. Sometimes that gets like maybe an hour ahead of time, but it happens. Um, and while you're listening, you can interact with us and other listeners in the chat room. Uh, so uh, come, come, come visit us when we're, when we're broadcasting, we'll try to, you know, let you know far enough ahead of time. You can actually do that. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show. Uh, we do have expenses. They run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We do have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Laura and Becky did, and thank you again for that. And we have put together a list of recovery-related books. If you click on the books link at the top of the page, uh, you can order these books from Amazon uh, or some of them from Elanon directly. When, when you order from Amazon, we receive a small commission. Uh, obviously, Al-Anon's not in the business of handing out commissions, and I'm uh, just fine with that. Um, and uh, whatever, in whatever way you can support us, uh, whether it's just listening to us, uh, we thank you for your support. Uh, tell your friends, and uh, we are here for you. I'm going to close the show with a song that Jen suggested. Um, she wrote, It just came up on my Pandora at work. Wow. The song is called Drugs or Me. It was by Jimmy Eat World. And I see that when I played this song, I sort of see it. It's a sort of a plaintive lament that's addressed to an addict, and it has this refrain. If only you could see the stranger next to me. You promise, you promise that you're done, but I can't tell you from the drugs. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problem, there are those among us that have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. Stay.